0: Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to begin this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, if you would please turn there and be joining me there. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, the fourth chapter. In just a moment, we'll start reading in verse 15. It is good to have everybody here. Uh, We are constantly needing to remove sections of the tape that we've been using to... Uh, social distance ourselves and help make that easier. Uh, And that is a wonderful problem to have. I think a few Sundays in a row I've had to go and take out another piece of tape so we can make room for someone else to sit. And I love it. I hope that trend continues. Um, It's very good to have everyone here. I know we have some folks who are visiting with us because you're traveling through the area. We wish you safe travels and hope to see you again. If you ever come uh, through this part of the country uh, once more, We'd love to get to see you once again. If you are from this area, if by chance you are, are looking for a, um, a church to be a part of, if you are perhaps looking to start uh, serving God properly, maybe for the first time in your life or for the first time in a long time, um, we would love to open God's word with you. And talk about you and learn about you and study what is of concern to you and show you what the scriptures say uh, God says so that we might be more pleasing to him. We'd love to help you in that way. Um, but it's just good to have everyone here this morning. I want to say uh, on a personal note um, just again how much I appreciate all of the support over the last couple of weeks since Crystal had her surgery. Uh, she had a, a, couple, a couple of uh, rougher days about two days ago. Um, But she seems to have have crested that and is doing much better. Still sore, still very tired, still only able to do so much, um, but doing a lot better. And I am I told Wendell, I'm very glad uh, that what he mentioned in class about never returning a dish empty is not a hard and fast rule in this society. uh, If it ever was at least anymore, uh, because I would have a lot of cooking to do. So many of you, I think I've got a list of about eight different, uh, couples and families who have, have brought us food. Some nights it even overlapped and that was just fine. And then I know there's a few more of you that have wanted to and we said, hold off. We're good. We've got more than enough. Um, so thank you so much to everyone, uh, from Tom and Chris who came over and watched the boys so that I could be at the hospital to all of you who brought food. I haven't, I don't think I've cooked anything in like a week and a half. Um, so it's, thank you so much for, for all the, the help during this time. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together, excuse me, by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This morning, I want to talk with you about the fundamental character and the virtues that are needed in order for us to effectively work together with each other. Um, No matter the group, no matter the, the wealth of brotherly love that may already be present among the group, as is the case God be praised in this group. Working together is nevertheless not always easy. Working with others in any endeavor is not always easy. Because people are imperfect. And each of us has problems and struggles. And when people try to work together, those things are often brought into the spotlight and sometimes exacerbated. But we know... That what we are able to do together as the people of God is much greater than what we can do on our own. So we have to learn how to to work with each other, live with each other, be brethren together, and how to work through the problems that may arise as we work together. So what I want to do is talk with you about what the Bible says concerning teamwork. The attitudes and the skills that we need to foster and grow so that we can be the kind of team The kind of body of believers that God intends for us to be. In Ephesians chapter 4, the image there is that of the body. So I want to make the, the first basic point this morning, which is in order for a body to be healthy, each of its parts must be working together. So the parts of your physical body, they don't work in isolation from each other. They coordinate with each other. If they don't, if parts of our body are not working in union with one another, the result is debilitation, disease, damage to the entire body. Sometimes doctors will talk about it as if your body is fighting against itself, your body's attacking itself when things are not working in union as they're supposed to. Um, if you will turn with me from Ephesians 4 to 1 Corinthians 12. You're going to see Paul use the same metaphor there as the church, as the body of Christ. It's the the very point that he makes here in this passage as he's talking to the church there in Corinth, which if you know that book at all, you know that's a, a group of brethren who are just riddled with division. So he says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I want you to note especially what he says in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So the point Paul's making here in this passage is that the way God has designed the church is just like the way God's designed your body. And the way god has designed the body is not just with individual parts that work in isolation as if there's no relationship between them if a body's going to be healthy all of its parts must work in coordination with each other they can't work independently of each other again if the body if if, if the parts of our body attempt to work independently of one another that creates a considerable crisis for us physically Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe you experience now something like that, where your body doesn't quite do what you're telling it to do and sometimes seems to have a mind of its own. My dad, I think you all remember, uh, recently had something of a stroke. Could have been a whole lot worse, but it wasn't nothing. And sometimes his leg or his arm just does what it wants to do and not what he wants it to do. It's an issue for him. Um, as anybody who's ever had a relative suffer a stroke or if you've ever gone through that sort of thing yourself, you know, your body's not coordinated like it used to be. It doesn't work together like it used to. And Paul says the same thing that's true for a body where if a member goes off and does its own thing and doesn't paying attention or isn't in coordination with the rest of the parts of the body, there's a problem. He says the same thing is true for the church Spiritually. In our country, we like to sometimes celebrate the notion of fierce individualism. And I can understand the appeal of that concept. The idea that there is personal accountability is important. And in fact, that's going to be the third point of the lesson here in just a few minutes. So it is something that's easy to appreciate. But the Bible does not teach this concept of unreserved individualism, it is never the way it depicts Christianity. When the Bible talks about what it means to be a Christian, it talks about it in terms of being a body in which you and I are all interconnected parts. It talks about it in terms of being a family in which we're all related to each other. It talks about it in terms of being a temple in which we're all living stones that are fitted together into a dwelling place for the Lord. It's never just isolated individual pieces Uh, living stones scattered in a field, if you were. So as members of Christ's body, as living stones in that one house for the Lord, as members of God's family, we've got to work together. And that concept of working together is going to be true in any relationship where there's there's more than one piece at work. If it's a marriage, if it's a family, uh, if it's a team at work, certainly in a congregation. But again, as we said at the start of everything, working together isn't always easy. And it certainly doesn't happen by accident. It's definitely not something for um, for those who are unwilling to work at it. It's not child's play. Which kind of leads me to the second point that I want to make this morning. And that is that working together requires maturity. So Gavin's in the fifth grade um, So he got to go to school a number of years in in public school before the pandemic hit. And we've had our boys at home since Crystal's been so high risk. Um, This is Isaiah's first year of school. And online stuff is all he's ever known so far. Um, I tell you that to say this, um, Isaiah's report cards and progress updates have been unique to some of the ones that that Gavin's gotten over the years. You know, if you go to to school, you attend in-building then a part of your report card when you get that is not just to tell you how the person is doing with reading and writing and things like that. It also tells you how the person conducts themselves, um, how their their conduct is in class in general. Sometimes it will also talk about how well they interact with others, how well they play with others. Um, As you might expect, because you know his conduct here, Gavin plays pretty well with others and not to embarrass him. But sometimes too well. The teachers try to move him around so he won't get uh, so, so talkative with some of his friends. But then he goes and makes friends with everybody and it just doesn't work. Um, I think one kid threw a block at him in preschool and got the block returned in a similar fashion. Uh, but otherwise, all's pretty well. But we understand that a part of growing up, part of being mature, is learning to play well with others. That's why it's on the report card. If someone doesn't learn to play well with others, then we don't think that they're very mature. Matter of fact, if you see grown-ups that are, are squabbling and bickering with each other and can't seem to get along, what's something that we accuse them of? You're acting like children. So we all understand there's a clear connection between one's ability to work with others and maturity. If you're still there in 1 Corinthians, turn back to chapter 3, if you would, because you'll see this is the, the very thing Paul uh, points as, uh, or pinpoints as the issue here in Corinth. He effectively accuses the Corinthians of acting like children. He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, Brethren, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk and not solid food because you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving only? Uh, different translations will phrase this differently. The the ESV, as you have on the screen here, says in only a human way. Uh, the NIV says in a worldly way. And here's what Paul is getting at. At the end of chapter 2, he was talking about the fact that he had been, as an apostle, given the things of the Spirit. The, the things of God to share with them. But the natural man, the worldly person, does not receive those things. The person who is driven by their, their, their impulses, their earthly desires, the, just the, the, the desires of, of this life and this world, they don't receive God's instructions. They don't receive spiritual things. They don't want them. And the problem, Paul says, is that the Corinthians have reverted back to living that natural, carnal, fleshly, worldly way. They're living like people driven by those impulses as opposed to people who have submitted themselves to what God's spirit says. And Paul says, as a result of that, it's like you've become infants all over again. Babes in Christ. And because of their their, um, condition as as infants in Jesus, according to verse 3, he says there is jealousy and strife. They're immature. And because they're immature, they don't play well with others. So if you and I, who are blessed to get to be brothers and sisters in Christ, are going to work well together with each other, the Bible says that we've got to grow up. As long as the Corinthians were um, satisfied to to be like children, throw tantrums and squabble with each other, then the the factionalism that was dividing that church was just going to continue. So what was the solution for them? What's the way out of that sort of situation? If the parts of our body have to work together for the body to have health, And if in order to work together we must be mature, how do we grow up? I believe the way that we grow up to maturity is by taking personal responsibility. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about the Corinthians as infants in Christ. They have to be fed spiritual milk instead of solid food. I imagine that passage rang a sort of bell, not just from knowing it here in 1 Corinthians 3, but also from where you're probably more familiar with that that, uh, imagery being used in Hebrews 5. Where the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you. In other words, by this time you ought to be the ones... Who are teaching and encouraging and exhorting other people and leading others to Christ and helping those who are young and immature in the faith, those who are genuinely babes in Christ, new Christians to grow. But you're not fit for that task, he says, because you're still reliant. You're still dependent. You still need someone to come along and and, and spoon feed you and hold your hand and help teach you and help you through. So it's this issue of, of dependency That he is getting at. And that's even how we speak of childhood, isn't it? We talk about children as dependents. The reason we call them dependents is because they depend on on us. They depend on others to provide for them. They're not independent. They depend on other people for their food, for their clothing, for a place to live. One of the ways we measure a person progressing from childhood to adulthood, from immaturity to maturity, is the extent to which they can provide those things for themselves. There's a reason, um, if you notice, that, that Isaiah and Edmund are sitting today with, with Brian and Regine, and Gavin's just sitting there by himself. Gavin's 11. Gavin's progressing towards maturity. We talked about how he can kind of go on autopilot when he gets here. I know he's going to do what he's supposed to do. The little boys, they're generally well-behaved, but generally is the operative word there. And sometimes they need a little bit of, of uh, um, uh, guidance. We expect our children to eventually grow out of that, though. And they will continue to do so. They're a whole lot better behaved than they were a year ago when the pandemic started. Um, but we expect them to go beyond that, right? To, to go and get a job eventually. To, to start to provide, to manage some of their own money. And to make sure that their schoolwork is getting done without being hovered over. And eventually, we expect them to even move and, and, and perhaps even go to a different state where they get a, a higher education. After which they go and they get a grown-up job. And they can even then be on their own. And, and should the Lord will and they so choose, they can start a family of their own. And start that process all over again with their own little ones. So that's how we understand the process of a child maturing, where they go from dependence to independence. The problem with the Hebrews and the problem with those in Corinth, according to the writers of both epistles, is that they, 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 didn't, they aren't growing. In Hebrews, he says, it's because you become sluggish. You're lazy. You've stagnated. And so instead of moving from dependence to independence, he says, you should be teachers, yet you yourselves need to be taught almost all over again. That's the issue with them. And if we're going to grow into maturity, then we have to move from the position in which I'm always reliant on somebody else to where I come to the point where I can stand personally accountable to the Lord and independent on my own and help them. Now, we don't live in a culture that makes that very easy for us. We seem to have shifted from a culture in which parents hold their children accountable to one in which parents make excuses for their kids. Not across the board, but it seems more prevalent. Um... Whenever my report cards came home, if there was a bad grade on there, guess who mom and dad talked to? Me. They talked to me. They dealt with me. They whooped the life out of me. And the only reason they might have for calling the teacher would be so that I could formally apologize to them for my behavior and my failure to put in my best efforts. Now, we don't seem always to live in a culture anymore in which people are held accountable. And it is not just kids blaming their teachers. It's criminals blaming the police. It's the person who says the things that is inflammatory to to violent groups, who says something that upsets the terrorists and so they blow up the building. It's their fault instead of the angry zealot who actually blew up the building. We seem content to blame everybody else except the person who actually did what was wrong. As it happens, this isn't any kind of a new problem. It's an ancient one. It's always been a problem with immature people. When the children of Israel were sent into exile in Babylon, after a while, they developed a little slogan. You remember how that goes? Ezekiel 18 verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. They were fond of this little saying. It made them feel better, it seems. In other words, it's my old man who was sinful, but I'm the one stuck in captivity. I'm the one paying the price for his crimes. You remember what God says to them in Ezekiel 18? He says, knock it off. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. That's about as emphatic as God lives, you'll stop saying this. Behold, all souls are mine. I got to tell you that passage. You ever see someone give someone else the look like they're in trouble? And that look is so effective that even though it wasn't aimed at you, you get the shivers. It's that kind of passage. As I live, declares the Lord God, you will no longer say this. I'm not the one saying it and I still get chills. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, the soul who sins shall die. It goes on to say the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. What I want you to see is that even in ancient Israel, there was this tendency to try to foist the blame on others instead of taking personal accountability for for my growth. The tragedy in all of this is maturity requires growth, and growth requires change. But if I'm never willing to accept that I need to change in my life, I'm never going to grow. And if I'm never going to grow, I'm never going to mature. And if I'm never going to mature, I'm never going to learn how to work with other people. And I'm never going to be able to enjoy some of the greatest blessings that life can offer through the the people of God. So it's important to ask the question, am, am I sitting back waiting on others to spiritually cater to me? Am I waiting on them to somehow cause me to grow? Or am I taking personal responsibility for my walk with Christ? Now, none of that is to say that that new Christians, young Christians, or those who are anywhere along the line as they're trying to grow, are not allowed or not supposed to be assisted and brought on and encouraged and lifted up and helped to grow by those who are further along that development process than they are. The Bible specifically says that those who are more experienced in the faith have an obligation to guide and mentor and nourish their faith. There's a reason God gives congregations shepherds. What we're talking about here is is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You've got those who've been Christians for years. And yet they've not grown like they should have. He says, you've become lazy, you're sluggish, you need to go on to maturity. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 5, Paul says, each will have to bear his own load. Now in this passage, he's not talking about that kind of unreserved individualism that we mentioned earlier. Because just a couple of verses prior, he said that the royal law of Jesus is fulfilled when you and I bear each other's burdens. So there's some things that you and I face in life, sometimes crushing trials that we face in life, and we help each other. Maybe we bring a a mountain of food to help someone going through whatever they're going through. Or maybe someone's really struggling with some sin that's in their life. Um, If you looked at the bulletin, I mentioned two families that I know that are going through some immense marital difficulties because of infidelity on behalf of, of one member in each of the families. And one of them is is just going ahead and proceeding with divorce. They're they're not Christians. Um, So they've just, and and of course, if there's infidelity, then they have the right to put their mate away. But there's no concern with a lot of that. They're just done. Um, The other couple, um, they're trying. They're really trying. But there's a lot to overcome. And they have needed a lot of help from people. And rightly so, their brethren have been trying to give it. So that's not what we're talking about here. What Paul is is, is saying here in Galatians 6 verse 5 is that there are just some certain responsibilities that you and I have that no one else can bear for us. No one can believe for you. No one can be holy for you. No one can obey for you. No one can grow for you. You and I've got to choose to do those things and take personal responsibility for that. You can have people who try to teach Bible classes and teach lessons and help you learn the scriptures. But nobody can see to it that it it sticks and is applied but you. And that's the key to becoming mature in the Lord. Well, What does all that have to do with working together? Maybe you've tried to work with someone at your job or in class or on your team or in whatever group. And they never take personal responsibility for anything that they do. How easy is it to work with someone like that? How easy is it to work with someone who always says that it's always somebody else's fault? It's impossible to work with someone like that. If someone accepts their faults, then then they can correct them and, and do away with them and we can right what is wrong. But if they never accept their faults, then those faults just compound Very quickly, I'll give you the example. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 13 when the Philistines have amassed themselves against Israel in such a force, the Bible says it was like the sand on the seashores. And the Israelites are terrified. A lot of them are running and actually literally hiding in caves, hiding in cisterns, even hiding in tombs. And Saul and the rest of his army are trembling and they've gathered at Gilgal to await for Samuel to come. So Samuel can offer sacrifice and pray and give the people courage and and assure victory in God's name. But he seems to be late. So what does King Saul do? He decides that he's going to offer the sacrifice himself, which is, of course, something a king from the tribe of Benjamin has no right to do. And just as soon as he finishes, who shows up? Samuel does. And when he says to Saul, what have you done? Do you remember what Saul says in response? When I saw that the people were scattering from me, And that you did not come within the days appointed. And that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. And offered the burnt offering. I love it. I forced myself. Samuel, you don't know how bad. I did not want to do this. But the people were bailing out. You were late. Here's the Philistines, and I've got to have the favor of the Lord before I can do this. So I I didn't have a choice. I had to do it. It's kind of the classic scriptural example of someone who makes it everybody else's fault except for their own. And you remember what Samuel says. Oh, okay. He says, Saul, you've disobeyed the Lord. And you're going to be the first and last king of your line. It's not exactly the last time Saul does it either. You know, when they're supposed to go and kill all the Amalekites and don't leave anything at all. Well, he doesn't. And the people told me to do this. They wanted to do this. We wanted to offer some sacrifices. Saul just never takes personal responsibility. And it's impossible for a nation to be led fitly by a man who won't do that. David, for all of his blunders, was someone who, when he was confronted with his sin, would simply confess. I have sinned against the Lord. And that's the the, the the all the difference. That's the great difference between David and Saul. The willingness to take responsibility. So maturity means accepting responsibility for my walk with the Lord. It means that I own up to my mistakes. And I own up to where I'm not what I ought to be as, as a Christian, as a father, as a husband, as a brother in Christ, etc., and it means I try to grow from the experience, which is something that Saul never did, but David did. And a person with that kind of heart can be someone after God's own heart. and can also be someone who works with other people. But someone who refuses to ever take responsibility. They can't. And that's why this is important. And most importantly, a person with this kind of a heart... Who will own up, who will be responsible, who will take responsibility, is a person with a heart that God can work with. And that's ultimately what all this is about. So we're about to sing the invitation song. And I would like you to consider your condition before God. Take accountability of your life before him, if you will. And see if there is something... That you need to change in your life in order to be pleasing to him, acceptable to him. Maybe it's not a lot of things, maybe it's everything. And if there's something that we can possibly do to help you. Either to to hear your confession that you believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And to see you baptized into Christ and become a child of God. Or if you need to correct your life as one of his children. That you've not been living the way the father would have you then please let us know, even right now, as we stand and sing.